action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your favorite semi-monthly pro-movie pop culture, historical cross-section of everything cinema. I'm here with my good friend, Matt Knutson. I'm your host, Oscar Dahl. And we're back to our AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 58, The Gold Rush by Charlie Chaplin. Matt, how you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm just sitting here kind of eating my shoe using my fork for everyone who hasn't watched there's a reference to the movie the gold rush which we are talking about there's a scene in this film where a very famous scene actually where charlie chaplin boils and eats his shoe and i was thinking to myself the the scene happens relatively early in the movie and then for the rest of the movie he just his left foot is just wrapped up with a bunch of like burlap and rope and stuff and he's got to waddle around to all these crazy sets and all these set pieces and all these stunts and i was thinking I wonder if he if he had second thoughts about that somewhere in the production when he was trying to wrap that stupid thing around his foot. I mean, not not that they necessarily shot the film in order, but I presume that must have been an extraordinarily annoying to have to do that every single morning. They sh- he should have just written in a scene where he like finds some dead prospector laying in the snow and decides to take his shoe or something, right? Or probably the biggest responsibility of the script supervisor on that set, right? Make sure. Which scenes to not have the shoe? Which scenes to have the shoe? It's just an incredible like uh, commitment to the bit uh, that he he loses his shoe ten minutes into the movie, and then for the next hour and twenty, he has to waddle around with this stump. If nothing else, Mr. Chaplin commits to the bit. Indeed, this is our second Chaplin movie on this top one hundred countdown. First one, Modern Times, which I believe was in the seventies somewhere. Sounds right. So we've already talked about Charlie Chaplin, but uh, let's let's do it again, Matt. You want to give us sort of a historical, contextual rundown of, of this movie? This is Chaplin's first film with United Artists. Now, United Artists is, of course, the company that he founded with D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks in 19, 1919, founding of United Artists. So they'd already made a handful of films by this point, but this is the first United Artists film to feature Charlie Chaplin. And at the time, it was the most expensive and the longest comedy ever produced. This film obviously comes before Modern Times and The Great Dictator and City Lights. A bunch of high-profile stuff would come later. But at the time... Char, you know, Chaplin was a pretty big name. This is definitely after The Kid. I'm shot in 1924, released in 1925, and then re-released in 1943. Basically, Chaplin's director's cut, which for all intents and purposes will be the version that we, we talk about today. But the original version was released silent with intertitles June 
26th, 1925, 95 years ago this last June. Very expensive, but highly anticipated and was just an instant success, just a huge success around the world. At the time, Chaplin insisted that it was the film he wanted to be remembered for. Years later, he would go on to backpedal a little bit when he insisted that City Lights was actually his favorite. But this one is definitely, I would say, like his first major instant classic. Features some of the most iconic scenes in silent cinema, the aforementioned shoe-eating scene, um, the climactic sequence with a cabin teetering on the edge of a cliff, and quite possibly the single most famous sequence in a Chaplin movie, which is weird to say because it's such a small moment, but it's so iconic. The silly little bread dance that he does with the little bread rolls, right? Which was apparently such a phenomenon (laughs) that audiences in Berlin were so taken with that scene that they they shouted for the projectionist to actually stop the film, roll it back, and run it again as if it was an encore. Like, they wouldn't stop yelling until the projectionist played it for them again. They were that taken with it. I, I, I think it's probably the most memorable sequence in the movie, even though it, it's, what, all of 25 seconds long or something? Yeah, I mean, that story seems maybe a bit uh, apocryphal, but <laughs> it definitely is the most iconic scene. So I don't have a history with this movie. I didn't grow up watching Chaplin. If you listen to our first Chaplin podcast, that will that will be very clear. Where does this sort of rank to you in the Chaplin oeuvre? Is this, is this up near the top? Do you have it above City Lights? Do you think it's the most sort of indicative of Chaplin's uh, genius? Yes. Yes. Full stop. I mean, we've talked about this during the during the Modern Times podcast. These are the three entry level ones because they're probably the most memorable and the, and the most famous. Uh, and this is the proper order. Modern Times, The Gold Rush, and then City Lights would be his masterpiece, which I think is unequivocal. I, I guess it could come down to just personal preference. I was just listening to the commentary track on the Criterion Collection with this guy, uh, Vance. I think Jonathan Vance, he's uh, one of Chaplin's biographers. He concedes that City Lights is probably a better movie but the gold rush is his favorite. So it kind of just comes down to personal preference. But this one is really important because it's such a unique and distinct setting, right? Modern Times and City Lights, those are urban set tales about the tramp wandering around in his element, right? Wandering around in an, ur- in an urban setting. He's a, he's a loafer in an urban setting. He's a flaneur, if you will. This is the tramp on the side of a mountain in the Yukon, right? So he's a stranger in a strange land, and so it's implicitly unique. And the idea, the first time you see him, he's just wandering around on this cliffside, and it's not like he's draped in all sorts of bear furs or anything. He's just wearing his little tramp costume in the middle of the wilderness. Is the implication that the tramp is unstuck in time, that he is timeless with without a place? that he's sort of just this mystical creature that can wander into any sort of situation and and still be himself. Cypher would be the wrong term, right? Because Cypher would suggest that we can, any of us can just kind of like inject ourselves into the character. The, the, The little tramp obviously has a lot more personality than that. He's the archetype that Chaplin created. And there was a time in the 20th century when he was the most recognizable silhouette in all of culture to see him shuffling through the snow falling out of this cabin on the side of a cliff there's just striking imagery in this film there's something wonderfully incongruous about his position in this particular environment it's important to note that the very first sequence of the film is shot on location and then the rest of the film is all 
on stages. The opening scene, which is really impressive at the Chilkook Pass, which of course was a, was a real place. It connected Alaska to the Yukon, I believe. Beginning of this film recreates the Chilkook Pass. They shot it in Truckee, California, just east of the Donner Pass, actually. Chaplin and his producers went and just wrangled like 600, as Wikipedia puts it, like 600 hobos from uh, Sacramento, paid them for a day's work and put them on a train and shipped them out to Truckee. And we had 600 hobos walking up the side of this mountain in Truckee, California through the snow. It's a staggering sequence. It's only about three shots. It's very impressive because it's real. But the experience of shooting that was apparently so difficult on Chaplin and his crew who were used to shooting on the back lot, shooting on stages, shooting in LA, shooting lots of takes, having a much more kind of like leisurely relationship with the production process. Tried to shoot a few sequences and it was just such a failure that he basically threw everything out except for those first couple of shots and they moved the whole production right back to uh, West Hollywood. There's an authenticity that is established in those first couple of shots, but then for the rest of the film, it's all just movie magic, culminating with a lot of miniature work at the end. I don't want to rehash too much from from our last podcast, but... You know, when you sit down to watch The Gold Rush, Matt, do you enjoy it for, like, do you see it as a masterpiece for for what it is? Or does the historical context play a large part in your relative enjoyment of the movie? Do you sit there and are are you laughing? Do, do, Do you find this sort of experience akin to watching a great comedy of modern times? No, pun intended. Or, or, or is it sort of like, intermixed with with your appreciation for the filmmaking of 1925 and what it meant to audiences of that time. Yeah, I I guess I'm cursed slash blessed with not being able to divorce myself from from those two experiences. Like I just I can't really watch anything without historical context because I'm obsessed with it. And I just take it I take it with me to everything. And it's it's very, very rare that I sit and just become swept away by something. So yeah, I mean, I sat with this film. I hadn't seen it in probably 25 years. I hadn't seen it since high school. Sat with it on the Criterion Collection and my Wikipedia page open and my notes. You're not disappearing into the film, no. Exactly. All that being said, I was very taken with it and I and I did get involved in it and I did find it to be incredibly pleasant. Like I definitely chuckled through the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I'm always impressed by Chaplin's physicality and his dexterity. Like you just look at the silly little bread sequence and it's just so specific to him. It's just so unique. It's you can't put your finger on why it works or why it's so charming because there's just something about his face and his timing and the dexterity of his hands and the way that his eyes dart around, his relationship with the music. There's an intangibleness to Chaplin's genius that I have a hard time qualifying. All that being said, it's important to note that the whole bread dance thing is actually attributed to Fatty Arbuckle, who did a similar dance in a film uh, that Max Sennett directed in 1917, so that would be seven years earlier. That being said, you know, Chaplin obviously makes this his own. He can do that, or he can do like big, broad physical comedy, you know, being chased around the cabin by a bear or being chased around with a shotgun. I guess my point is that I guess I do watch it in a 1925 context. You got to kind of watch these things with an eye towards context. But I think it still works. I think it's still fun. I think it's still enjoyable. It's a perfectly pleasant 92 minutes. Perfectly diverting. Yeah. 
I think children would still get something out of it. One of the most effective little sequences of the movie is when uh, the guy who owns the cabin or the guy who's squatting in the cabin just opens the door and Chaplin just can't get out of the cabin because the, because the Yukon winds are blowing in and just him sliding around on the on the floor of the cabin because he's got no heels on his shoes. It's specific to him and it just works and it's fun. The, I mean, this is just the hard part of of talking about and, you know, quote unquote, ranking a movie from 100 years ago. You know, I sit down to watch this. As you mentioned, it's a pleasant watch there's there's it's it's easy to watch it's amusing i'm impressed by the filmmaking i'm impressed by the ingenuity i'm impressed by you know charisma and uniqueness of of chaplin himself but i'm sitting there and i'm not i'm not laughing right i'm 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 smiling every now and then the movie is not doing what it's intended to do which is be out and out riotous comedy It, it just leads me to questions of what's the modern day equivalent of a movie like this was this movie notable in 1925 and become such a smash hit and charlie chaplin become such a megastar because that was absolutely the pinnacle of comedy at the time or was it because the competition wasn't there just we we come to these same questions with you know looking at the marx brothers too it's not for me this is not something i would watch just on my own volition and while i certainly do appreciate it i just it it, it keeps itching at me that i i'm not sure it's actually very funny at all and maybe that's me maybe i'm just admitting that I, i i don't get it which is easy to do i wasn't around in 1925 i still look at the like breadth and depth of cinematic comedy that we now have comedy is typically of its time right we do look about at comedies from the 1960s that i think still work today we look back at comedies from five years ago that don't work today sure it's a good point it's always just a really interesting dichotomy when you look at what works of the moment and what works later i wonder if there are certain movies from the 80s if they became the pinnacle of comedy are we going to look back 70 years from now and think coming to america is a top 50 movie of all time i'm guessing it's because there's so many comedies of the last 50 years that we won't if coming to america was the pinnacle of comedy in 1925 there's a good chance it would be a top 20 movie right now do you know what i'm saying kind of i think that there's something to be said for just the broadness and the physicalness of comedic filmmakers like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, like these guys who were really playing to the back of the theater and were making movies for everybody and were making the kind of movies that um, would not just appeal to Americans of all ages, but would appeal to audiences all over the world. Because you can pretty well keep up with this movie, even if you weren't reading the intertitles, right? It's a silent film. Silent films are designed to be to be readable <laughs> narratively without necessarily having to read the intertitles. Perhaps lists like this are more inclined to want to celebrate those kinds of broad, wide-reaching comedies, even if you don't necessarily laugh at it because it's not your particular brand of yucks, you can you can still get it. You can still engage with it because it's so visual and it's so simple, right? I wish the same kind of film historians like you, Matt, and I'm not trying to attack you here. I'm just saying in, in very general sense. Haven't film historians suffered enough? Oscar read this I, I mean, shouldn't film historians take that same line of thinking and apply it to, say, Adam Sandler, right? Like, isn't that sort of the equivalent of the modern-day Charlie Chaplin? Should we be looking back 80 years from now? The broad comedy appealing to a mass audience. If that is the argument for Charlie Chaplin being 
timeless and a, and a genius of his time. Shouldn't we, I mean, what are we going to look back on in 50 years as, as the comedic masters? To go further, like, who do you see as the modern day Charlie Chaplin if there is one? Certainly not Adam Sandler, but that, you know, that's just me. During this discussion, I've been thinking a lot about Seth Rogen and an American Pickle. Not to date this podcast, but I think just premiered on HBO Max or maybe 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 it's the day after tomorrow. Anyway, I hear it's funny and charming and fine. I don't I haven't heard it from anyone saying it's a comedic masterpiece, but it is kind of in the same vein of this sort of like relatively high concept fish out of water comedy. I, I don't know if there is if there is a modern equivalent of a true comedic auteur who is writing, directing, starring in this stuff, and is also just an iconoclast, you know, like someone who has has created this character that is instantly iconic and is able to do things physically and, and through on-screen charisma that nobody else can do. Any modern comparisons are hard. I mean, Albert Brooks, I guess, in the 80s would, would maybe be, I mean, you could bring up Woody like Allen. It's cerebral. Just kind of created their own character that they played over and over again. I, again, I, I think part of that is I don't think modern audiences or critics would respond well to someone playing the same character over and over again in movies. I think they'd get a lot of shit for overdoing it, and I'm not sure audiences would react. Adam Sandler kind of does do that, right? Like, he's, he's in, a, in, 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 in a certain respect, he is kind of playing the same character over and over and over. He kind of does have a persona, and a lot of people go back expecting that, and they're disappointed that they don't get some version of it, right? So you agree with me. Matt Knudsen, on the <laughs> record, yeah, I guess has solved, said, solved has stated, problem. Adam Sandler is the modern-day Charlie Chaplin. Put it on Knudsen's gravestone. Um, <laughs> I, again, I mean, this is this is sort of my point. Like, let, let's take a, a hypothetical here, right? The, the best comedies, objectively, the most popular, the most critically acclaimed comedies of the last 15 years were only movies starring Kevin James. It's kind of, it's the kind of world I want to live in. Let's say that's the case. Every everything that we deem above that caliber doesn't exist. So Kevin James movies are, are are the pinnacle. Every other comedy is Rob Schneider level or below. Might be splitting hairs here between <laughs> Rob Schneider movies and Kevin James movies. I think there's a clear <laughs> delineation okay. between the call. I don't know. Wouldn't it stand to reason in 30, 40, 50 years we'd look back at Kevin James as as a visionary or 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 just an absolute comedic genius because at the time he was making the most money. He was the most critically beloved. He was the best. So you're talking about ubiquity. You're just talking about the amount of like the the audience size of somebody like Charlie, the, the amount of people he was able to appeal to. I'm also talking about relative quality. The fact that Charlie Chaplin was simply better than everyone else conflates with him being considered the best at the time. It's possible that we're overrating Charlie Chaplin simply because he was a big fish in a small pond. Fair, but I think he's worth overrating because of his level of influence as well. I bet you if you ask, I can't believe we're going to mention Adam Sandler half a dozen times in the course of 10 minutes, but I bet you if you ask... Because he's the modern day Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> I bet you if you asked him, I, I, I'd be surprised if he didn't admit some influence. Like, I, I'd be surprised if he, if he wasn't a fan. You mentioned Woody Allen. He obviously was and is, and much of his physical, com his early physical comedy and the early funny ones was absolutely influenced. 
the diminutive character who's always wanting to stand up to these big burly mountain men or whatever but as soon as they raise their hand like they're gonna swing at you Chaplin will immediately <laughs> dive out of the frame and what do you know Woody Allen was doing that throughout 20 years of his career whenever he'd do physical comedy so that kind of stuff the way that he influenced generations of comedic actors and also the way that he influenced filmmaking and the way that he and his team were um, making strides in special effects and the fact that he wasn't just content to sort of rest on his laurels and on his little tramp. I mean, he could have just been doing little tramp pratfalls in an urban setting for his entire career if he wanted to and probably would have been very successful. But he's like, no, I want to set this on a mountaintop and try something different and screw around with miniatures and screw around with forced perspective and glass shots, you know, matte painting glass shots and stuff like that. He was somebody who had ideas and had a vision and wanted to try things and wanted to experiment. And yes, he was always playing the same character, but he was interested in putting that character in interesting situations and giving him interesting relationships. Yes, he was always coming to the table with the same same costume and the same cane and the same disposition and the same sort of physicality. But I think part of that was because audiences in that time wanted that. It's kind of like the catchphrase thing, right? It's like Jimmy J.J. Walker in, in, in what, Good Times? Dynamite. Yeah, like, yeah. people are disappointed if you don't come in and say dynamites. You know? And people would be disappointed if Charlie Chaplin showed up and wasn't, wasn't wearing the bowler hat. So I'm sure he probably, at the beginning, enjoyed the, um, the security of that character because he obviously had a stranglehold on it. But I, I guarantee there must have come a time in his career where he probably was getting fed up with the fact that he was only associated with that. And later in his career, he started to push into different directions and The Great Dictator and Monsieur Verdot and Limelight and you know some of the later stuff. He started to kind of break out of that a little bit, but he's always going to be associated with the tramp. That's going to be his trademark for better or for worse. I, th- I think you're right. I don't know if there is a modern day equivalent to something like that. You know, I, I think Jim Carrey was kind of falling into that category for a while. There was a time there where there was something specific that we wanted from Jim Carrey. I don't know if you've heard him interviewed lately, but kind of feel like that may have broken Jim Carrey. Like, Jim Carrey's quote-unquote heyday, he may have gone crazy during that time because he seems kind of certifiable these days. And I'm wondering how much of that is the fact that we were expecting and insisting that he would talk out of his ass or say (laughs) smoke and that, you know, at every single Letterman interview he'd do or whatever. I think for, for better or for worse, some of these guys end up in a situation where there are expectations. There's certain things we expect from them. And yeah. Chaplin was able to fulfill that expectation while also recharging his creative batteries. Like if you look at something like City Lights, which and we'll talk about it here. Actually, we won't talk about it for a while because I think it's number 11 on this list. It's like it just is. barely missed the top 10. Something like that, you're just like, oh, yeah, that's just independent of Chaplin and the Tramp and his whole persona. It's just a phenomenal film. It's one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made. It's just a beautifully directed movie. Take the little tramp out of that movie and you still have a really interesting environment and a, and a really interesting approach to a romantic comedy. It's a beautifully made, heartbreaking film. I think it's much more successful than this one, but I do think that there's something here worth. I think this movie deserves to be on a list like this. I think it's, you know, certainly too high. I don't know how well it's aged. City Lights has aged much better. I, I think the, the best arguments for, for its placement on the list and its place just in, in history is the influence and the filmmaking. Because there's no accounting for taste 95 years in the past, like we've discussed. Look at the number one film on the AFI list, it's Citizen Kane. And what's the main reason it's there? Because of sort of its lasting legacy, its influence on filmmaking, kicking off modern cinema, right? And I think you can look at three Chaplin movies in here, having this movie at 58, 
and City Lights at 11 is a testament to all that it has wrought and, and just what it meant at the time. Uh, that doesn't mean that I would put it at 58. That doesn't mean I would put it on the list at all. But I tend to look at these things more selfishly. You should do that. I mean, you, sh- you should look at these things at face value. There's value in that. When we talk about this every time, that this will become the sort of defining theme of this series. I don't, you know, this series that might take us 10 years to do, but the defining theme is like, is this list curated with an eye towards context at all time? And is that a good thing? How do we curate history? How do we tell the next generation of cinephiles what is required viewing? And how many of these films should not be considered required viewing anymore? What constitutes required viewing? What constitutes the essentials? What constitutes the watch list to end all watch lists? AFI insists that when it comes to American filmmaking, this is the definitive list, and it's certainly a good starting place. I would tell film students or you know aspiring cinephiles, aggregate all this stuff. Somebody who's not familiar with Chaplin but who wants to get a grounding in, in film history, I think, will get something out of this even if they don't necessarily chuckle all the way through it the way that audiences in 1925 did. The question is, should they be spending their 95 minutes sitting in front of this, or should they be spending their 95 minutes sitting in front of, what's it called, Playtime? Who's who's the French? Jacques, Jacques Tati. There's a French version of The Little Tramp. There's an Indian version of The Little Tramp. Do you need to go back to the Urtext, or would you get more out of watching you know, Playtime as opposed to um, City Lights or um, The Gold Rush, for example? I, I agree with everything you said, and I think it's worthwhile to have movies like this on the list just to, just to show where film came from and what its influences are and who was popular at the time and what was considered great at the time. But it, it does feel like since that that Chaplin, Marx Brothers era, comedy has been sort of flushed down the drain critically a little bit. And then the respect isn't there as much as it was for, for something in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. I find that unfortunate because like I've said a million times, I think comedy is oftentimes harder than drama. Like there are less good comedies than there are good dramatic films. And so do I think one Charlie Chaplin movie should be on the list? Yeah, sure. But it's a it's a fucking travesty that there are no Mel Brooks movies on the list. That's crazy. No Monty Python. I mean, we should have Well, just to just just to be clear, there can't be any Monty Python because this is an American list, right? That's true. Although Kubrick gets on here. Well, Kubrick's American, but you know, uh David Lean gets on here. It's yeah, it's like yeah. uh, Your point is well taken. It's a very fuzzy distinction. But yeah, this guy, you know, Jacques Tati, he he wrote directed and starred in these films where he playing a character named Monsieur Hulot doing his riff on The Little Tramp. And a lot of these films are just much better than the Chaplin films, but they're also coming out 40 years later. <laughs> you know, they're coming out in the 60s, so and they're French. And so, but I guess my point is that if there's X amount of hours in the day, if you have X amount of years in your life and you want to be a rounded cinephile, which should be considered required viewing, and we're never going to come up with the ultimate list because ever because art is subjective and everybody has different priorities and we're all coming at it from different directions and that's cool that's fine it's just we all have to curate it for ourselves i do think the hardest part is dealing with comedies for for a list like this like i said there there are comedies from 10 years ago that don't hold up at all that were huge at the time there are comedies from 50 years ago that hold up great and then there's stuff like this which i don't even know how to how to deal with. I don't mind this being on the list. I wish there were two instead of three Chaplin movies or one instead of three Chaplin movies. Yes, I wish I wish we could sort of tick certain boxes when it comes to things that end up on this list that we feel are necessary. Like I think we both agreed that as many great things as there are about modern times, it definitely feels like lesser Chaplin compared to 
this, and it feels like much lesser Chaplin compared to City Lights, in my estimation. I don't know if there necessarily needs to be three on here, but for historians, this is a, this is an important text. Like this is this is considered this is a bona fide classic. This is a true classic of the silent film era. Huge hit. It made $4 million worldwide in 1925. That's that's nearly $60 million today. And Chaplin took home 50% of that himself. He pocketed about $2 million for this movie in 1925, which was important because he was in the midst of the biggest, most scandalous, and most expensive divorce, celebrity divorce, up to that point. He had gotten involved in a love affair with a 16-year-old girl who had been cast as the love interest in The Gold Rush. But before they could get to her scenes... He got her pregnant, and he had to marry her to avoid scandal, right? Chaplin and this 16-year-old girl abscond to Mexico. They have to, like, pause the production. They go down to Mexico. They get married. They come back. He has to recast her with someone else because now she's pregnant. Starts shooting the film again, and then he falls for this other actress who he's recast his now wife for. And so he gets involved with this other actress, and then his wife, his his young 16-year-old wife gets pregnant again, so they have a second child, but now he's with this other woman. And so his 16-year-old wife sues him and they end up getting divorced years later. But she ended up taking adjusted like $10 million or something in their divorce settlement. Big, big scandal at the time. But that was kind of Chaplin's brand. He 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 liked <laughs> he liked young ladies and uh, and he got he got a lot of them pregnant. So where was I going with that? Oh, so the point is it was this huge hit and Chaplin made a lot of money from it, but he also went out of pocket. <laughs> he needed that money because he was going to have to spend a lot on lawyers and on uh, alimony, child support after that. So uh, just a couple little pieces of trivia before we wrap this up. The 1925 version is completely silent. It has intertitles. You can watch it on the Criterion channel if you're into that sort of thing. The 1943 version, which is the much more widely available version, I think it's on HBO Max right now. You can actually watch it on YouTube. Uh, That was Chaplin's preferred version. It's basically a director's cut, although it's actually about 10 minutes shorter than the 1925 version. It features a voiceover from Chaplin, which it was actually nominated for a couple of Oscars in 1943, which is crazy to think that a film that had come out, yeah, you know, almost 20 years earlier was actually eligible for for Oscars. The uh, infamous boot eating scene, the boot was made of licorice. Like I said, this was Chaplin's first film with with UA. It took uh, 15 months from the very first shot of the film to the premiere to make. The miniature work in the climactic sequence, two things. One, did you find it distractingly silly? Two, what recent action movie did it remind you of? What recent action movie climax did it remind you of? Because there's something very specific that I was feeling during the... I don't know off the top of my head which recent action movie. I'm curious to hear what you think. And did I find distract? I mean, it was definitely silly, but the whole movie is very silly. So I didn't find it... It didn't take me out of it. I, I, th- I felt the miniatures for the most part pretty much worked. Like the spinning miniature cabin, it's very Wizard of Oz-esque. But it's fine. It's only once that little door flaps open and a silly little like Gumby, like a little Gumby Chaplin doll. I could have done without that. That's I don't know if that stuff has aged quite as well. But a lot of the composite stuff, you know, when there'd be an actor standing on the side of a cliff and then it would there'd be an avalanche and it would give way and they'd be doing like double exposure stuff where they'd shoot the miniature and then they'd shoot the act. They'd like actually roll the film back and then shoot the actor on top of that. It works pretty well for 95 years old. It definitely looks works uh, pretty well for for how old the movie is. But t- tell me, what what movie did it remind you of? I couldn't stop thinking. 
thinking about Mission Impossible Fallout at the end of this. And I was thinking about the helicopter hanging over the edge of the cliff and the fact that it gets caught, the wire gets caught between two rocks at the end of this movie. The, the, the cabin's falling off a cliff and there's this rope that it's connected to and it gets caught between these rocks. And it's the only thing keeping it from falling off the cliff. I just couldn't. Will you email Chris McQuarrie and ask him if that, if, if that was his inspiration? I wouldn't be surprised. He's, you know, he's a, he's a student of cinema. The dog in the opening cabin scenes was named Jip. He was adopted from a local kennel, and he lived out the rest of his life at the Chaplin Studios. He hung out in the guard shack for the rest of his life, which I thought was kind of adorable. Said Studios, Chaplin Studio, uh, still standing, mostly intact. It's right there um, on La Brea, just south of Sunset, and is currently the uh, home of the Henson Company, West Coast headquarters. So when you drive by the Chaplin Studios on Sunset, you'll actually see Kermit the Frog dressed up as a little tramp lording over La Brea. Do you have a worst scene, best scene? I I do find the dinner roll scene extremely charming. Uh, Yeah, it's it's hard to argue with it. It's just just absolutely adorable. It is iconic for a reason. How about you? Uh, Yeah, that's what I've got. I've got the dinner roll scene as the best and then the um, cabin climax as a very close second. The worst scene for me is the eating of the shoe, not because it's a bad scene or it's badly made, it just has always grossed me out. Like I, I understand why it's <laughs> iconic and it's very novel, but it just grosses me out. And when like when all the nails are sticking up out of the shoe and he uses one as like a wishbone, <laughs> just it just kind of grosses me out. Matt, you know what I'm looking forward to? 50, 60 years from now, when we're doing this uh, podcast in our 90s, we'll be in uh, thousands of episodes. And we probably still won't be done with this list. Well, no, we'll, we'll be done with it. We'll, we'll have started the uh, AFI 100th anniversary edition or 75th anniversary edition, and we'll be talking about Billy Madison's placement on the list. <laughs> Whether Billy Madison was enough or if it was too much for them to have Billy Madison and the Waterboy and Happy Gilmore on the list. Not the wedding singer, huh? You're going with the, the, water, the water boy. The wedding singer will be lost to time. It will be <laughs> no, probably wedding singer of Waterboy. Now that I think about it, and Little Nicky. That's everybody agrees. Little Nicky is definitely Adam Sandler's great dictator, right? That's that's Dark Sandler era. That about does it. You wanna you wanna call everyone to action here, Matt? If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting. I want to continue doing it. If you've liked what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred platform. Follow us on the socials at WLM Podcast. Drop us a line wlmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to help us keep the lights on visit welikemovies.com and click the donation link at the top the site is also where you can find podcast archives listicles rankings video essays and assorted wlm ephemera spread the word tell your friends help us keep the conversation going next time we do this we'll be talking about rocky rocky number 57 on the afi list rocky so join us for that i'm i'm excited for rocky baby <laughs> that makes two of us it's been it's been a long time since i've watched the first rocky i'm looking forward to it for oscar doll i'm matt knutson and the degree of difficulty on this episode was one half dinner roll out of two dinner rolls 